How are you doing, Gabby? I'm a little tired, but always uh, up, up for some really fast. <laughs> <laughs> Gets me motivated. Everybody is like chomping at the bit for us to record. I'm feeling all this pressure for the first time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like this episode was tempered in the sense that like there wasn't a lot of like psychodrama. It was a lot of just like picking up the pieces of the business stuff. So. Oh, you didn't feel there was much psychodrama. Interesting. I did. Oh, yeah, I would disagree. I did, but comparatively less to say the last you know four episodes of the first season. Interesting. Yeah. I say it doesn't uh, reach that sort of pitch of melodrama of the, and that sort of like sense of uh, almost like Shakespearean heaviness of those last. Right. Exactly. No, I mean there, there was for sure melodrama, but I think they had to do an episode like this where they kind of like delve into the like the business details a little bit, which is something that they do well because you still don't really like have to care that much about like the nuts and bolts of Waystar Royco. Um, that's part of the reason why a lot of us were attracted to the show is like we didn't want to have a, to, to, to care about like capital and wealth. And so I think this episode, there was a lot of that kind of talk, but it was essential because of where we left off. So anything else would have been, you know, felt a little incongruent, but but yeah, there was definitely more, it was more of a business episode. One of the interesting things was that it found, instead of these sort of like grand, like highly pitched moments, it found so much of the like um, subtler shades of the characters' relationships. And, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Which I found, yeah. And on the business front, I think it's really interesting that we get such a sense of how insidious and like far reaching the company is. Because, you know, obviously we already knew that they had this sort of like Fox News like network work we knew that they were making you know satellites to go up in japan but the fact that they talk about how they're even like funding indie films it's like oh there are exactly yeah completely insidious there's no escaping the reach of it yeah i think that's what i mean about like the business talk like just just roman coming in talking about how to like use the fixers and the the honey trap hookers and then shiv talking about why do we sell game consoles like that kind of stuff that's like we don't really get that much of it because it's not really a show about the company, but I thought it was interesting. Like I was, when Shiv was like, why do we make indie movies? I was like, Oh, I didn't know you guys made indie movies. Yeah. That's such a funny line just because <laughs> of the concept of this giant world bestriding Colossus funding quote unquote independent films. And also Shiv's yeah. reasoning that she doesn't want to do it being like, we don't even get a theme park ride exactly. out of it. And I was like, do you want that? Do you want a Fox <laughs> searchlight uh, ride? I think she does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. And then she's just like, scrap the news. Like, like nobody needs, yeah. nobody needs to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that I feel like so much of the show is about demonstrating the ways in which these sort of like petty squabbles, but then this one family just like fucking ruin the lives of everyone around them. And to have that moment where it illustrates just how much of like a hand in everything that they have, it's like, oh yeah, these idiots have so much power to just completely ruin people's lives that they would never even know existed. Yeah, I mean, even the way that they, like, Logan gets pissed and makes them throw out all the lobster, and, like, you just see Ken smoking a cigarette outside and some poor caterer pouring out, like, an entire platter of lobster tails. Um, I I thought this episode was interesting because it felt, you definitely felt right away that there's, like, you know, the, the budget has gone up the sets are glossier 
and we're, we're brought to more locations and I, you know, you get like slightly more overt glimpses of the wealth, which I think is important because I think with the exception of maybe like the last two episodes of season one in the castle, you know, you might have like, you might forget for a second how much a billion dollars actually is. But then like early on in this episode when they pull out and they show that overshot of the um, Tom and Shiv's like honeymoon yacht and it's just like enormous like tanker style and you're like fuck I forgot Um, but they don't like they again like they don't um, dwell too much on it which is great like then they show Shiv and Tom in their room and it's kind of just like a modest looking room and they're wearing modest looking clothes it's not like they're on the deck of the yacht being, you know, f- hand-fed grapes or anything like that. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you bring up the, <laughs> you bring up the throwing out of the food, because a thought that I kept having watching this episode was, like, we see within the plot this, like, egregious waste of resources, the sort of, like, casualness of their wealth that would be so monumental to anybody else. And right. seeing how they really upped the design and stuff in this season it's like while this show is critiquing it also this network is spending so much money on making this tv show um yes i had this sort of like conflicted feeling of like almost almost guilt to be watching something that clearly is such like an expensive venture and it's like what this is giving me a lot of pleasure but there are so many people that need this kind of money yeah i mean i think that's a point that we <laughs> through virtue of like recording 20 hours plus of this podcast have like sussed out and kind of reconciled ourselves to just a certain perspective and watching the show that not, not to like feel bad about the fact that we're watching this if you're not constantly having those conversations I can understand why it might still be you know gratuitous to watch but I do think that they toe the line well in terms of gratuitous portrayals of wealth like we we know the show doesn't really traffic in wealth porn um but this this episode you know definitely felt immediately just even like ken in iceland like i said the yacht uh the staff kind of preparing the palace that way ken's penthouse but him looking at the penthouse and saying oh it's fashion week so all the good ones are taken um. <laughs> yeah, that's so yeah. great. Yeah, and Greg going. Yeah, I'm sure it could be yeah. better. I just don't know how. Yeah. Yes. Oh, the best line. Yeah, we we need that, that that audience surrogate moment because yeah, that was. Mm-hmm. Well, forget about audience surrogate. I'm sure that was what uh, filming the first season was like because it seems like yeah, something unlocked between season one and two, and now they have access to all these great locations that they didn't necessarily have before, where they were like, oh man, you know, we've got the we've got the the worst uh, billionaire penthouse for Logan. Now we can get the real the real stuff. <laughs> these like ostentatious displays of wealth in the show because it's also so good at capturing that paradox of like hyper rich people that they will waste money by like throwing away lobsters and then they will bilk someone like the contractor out of two hundred thousand dollars which is like pocket change to them but life changing to him just the very casual petty way that brian cox plays that scene is oh god it's monstrous right it's like you see that so much of it is about ego and pride because yeah what is that money to logan but he felt so affronted by what the contractor did, you know, that, like, sense of propriety was activated, and he just had to, like, 
go and, and, and do what he did. And I, I know Brendan thought that that maybe was a little bit out of character for Logan, but I feel like knowing some of the, the, <laughs> the aging patriarchs that I know, it didn't feel that out of line. Um, it was telling that that was something that he would handle personally, but I feel like um, the raccoon thing is just like, it felt, it probably felt like <laughs> such a violation. Um, yeah. he, was so, he was so mad about it, you know, just the smell. It's like, it was out of completely out of his control. And then the thought that somebody is kind of like infiltrating his, his, his space and his $300 million home, you know, it's just, it's, it's extremely petty, but it shows the kind of things that, that piss somebody like Logan off and, and, Let's table that and come back to it because, uh, yeah. <laughs> much like this episode itself, we have uh, in- indulged in an extended cold open here without properly introducing <laughs> yeah. uh, the say, podcast. Yeah, we can go back and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sure, so. sorry, so, sorry, we're so excited. To be we're back. excited. Um, and uh, yes, if you're just tuning in, and you probably are, you're listening to the Roycast, the world's first and still best succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined as always by my co-host Gabby. Welcome back, everyone. And we are joined in studio this week uh, by a friend of the show, Shelly Farmer. Hello, Shelly. Hello. Hey, Shelly. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming all the way down to yeah. our, uh, our our wonderful studio in the Hamptons, which is way richer than <laughs> um, it was yes. in season one. Uh, Gabby and I both have different <laughs> hair for some reason. Um, you can't see it, but I promise we both look, uh, very, very just like, you know, just knife sharp, just like super ready mm-hmm. to go. At it. Yeah. Shiny people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so we're back for the season two premiere, which is titled the summer palace premiered on Sunday. Everybody's been, you know, yelling at us, DMing us. When are you going to record? Where's the episode? Uh, we know, we know, uh, but we have, we have jobs. We're sorry. I want. but we uh yeah we had a lot of thoughts on this episode and uh obviously as you heard from that cold open as it were we just kind of dove right in but i want to i guess kind of take the long view and talk about just kind of how this episode felt and you know at least my first impression which is that this uh this show feels really different to me I don't know if that uh, captures quite how the two of you felt about it, but you know, like the, after like the first like ten minutes, I was like, okay, this, there's a different vibe here, and I think it's good. Um, but you know, I, I was kind of just turning over how we were going to talk about it and thinking that like you know, over the first ten episodes of this podcast, talking about the first season, we had all these sort of assumptions or models about you know the show does this or the show is like this, etc., and then just kind of preparing ourselves for the possibility that some of that is going to change. And that the show is not going to be doing necessarily the same things it was, or if it's, you know, still about the same things and it's going to be about them in kind of a different way. But um, how did this feel on the whole to both of you? Did, did you did you feel a big shift? Well, I mean, for me, the first <laughs> watching it Sunday night, I had like so much nervous energy, I, I barely could even focus. So <laughs> I, it's been weird because we've been working on this podcast in one way or another, whether it's recording, planning, for like a year now. And so we've been talking about these same 10 episodes for so long, it almost felt like a sick joke. I was like, really? Like, we're getting more of, we're getting more of this? Like, you're giving us more? So I was too nervous the first time around to, like, really absorb everything. But, but yeah, it definitely, to me, like, right off the bat, like, we were talking about the, the set designs... Um, the different locations, it definitely 
feels like it's elevated its prestige status a little bit, but again, like not in an insufferable way. And I think that even just sort of tonally and in the the dynamics of the relationships, it feels like there's been a sort of a shift. Like I feel like the first season, so what is enjoyable and exciting about it is the fact that it is this high-pitched melodrama. It's very funny. It's very quick. Um, there's sort of like a, a lightness on its feet. And I think that the final episode and knowing what Kendall has done, like casts such a pall over all the proceedings. And I think that it's really deepened the relationships and showed some interesting layers to them, especially in the relationship between Kendall and Logan. Like my, my favorite line in the episode was when he, um, Logan tells Kendall, thinking's natural. It can't be helped, but you know, within limits. And that's like such an interesting key to that character. I think that this is not like a self-reflective guy who he really operates almost by like pure animal instinct. And like, even in his attempt to comfort his son after like a truly traumatic, like life altering experience, the most he can offer is like, try not to think about. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even give him the luxury of like staying in rehab for more than 48 hours before he has him dragged in front of a camera crew. But yeah, it, it, it's definitely very different to see Logan um, so in control. I think Brian Cox maybe lost some weight. Um, he looks really good. Like, And Ken, of course, is just the saddest man in the world. Slouched over. You know, even just from like the first scene when they pull him out of the spa and he's in that robe. Uh, talking to you know whoever that that fixer guy is i i like that they picked up where they left off i don't know if you guys thought that they were going to do that or if they were going to go ahead but um i mean it can't have been more than like three or four like four or five days since the wedding right like a week max right probably i think probably less than that because he says ken says he's only been there for 48 hours right right Um, less than 48 hours yeah yeah I mean, so it's... It, yeah, so she've sh- already got a haircut in that time. Which <laughs> <laughs> went highlights. straight from the wedding to the salon. We measure time by haircuts. Yeah. <laughs> does, her hair That's looks gorgeous. Do, she looks gorgeous. Um, but yeah. When we go through trauma, we get a haircut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For her, the wedding was a trauma, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like you were saying, Shelly, like just the, like how casual they are, like just the way that um, I mean, it makes sense for the kind of the relationship they have, but for Tom and Shiv to abandon Honeymoon after, like, two days when they have that, literally, like, I've never seen a yacht like that. Like, I mean, I've never really seen yachts, but, you know, just the the overhead shot of it was, like, insane. And in the background, when they were sitting, you could, like, see the, the water and the mountains, but they're just like, yeah, like, you know, let's go home and, and deal with... Um, like all of the the awfulness of that, you know, forget our honeymoon. Yeah, I think the I think the biggest key to the the different energy of the show is just the kind of flip positions that Ken and Logan are in. Where I mean, Ken was never like in control, but you know, he had you know he had what he thought was control or a vision or a plan for what was going to happen, and now he's you know completely submissive. Right. Uh, not only that, but he seems to be you know basically just a 
um, just a puppet for Logan and this just question that drove the whole first season for me of his kind of struggle for selfhood and to establish his own identity is now like just completely not in play. Like he's just lost that battle and he's surrendered and it doesn't even seem to be on his mind as much as, you know, what do I need to do to help my dad in these next five minutes is the only thing that's on his mind in every, in every scene. And then the difference just between Cox in the first season and the second season where, you know, for the whole first season, you know, even in the episodes where he's more in control towards the end, there's this sense that he's sort of struggling to stay awake or that he's struggling through this bout of dementia or recovery that he's going through. And he's just he's operating in a limited capacity, basically. And, you know, from the first scene we see him in and this one, he's like Satan in the flesh. I mean, he's just he's got so much energy. He's got so much just uh, just like a serpent, you know, he's, he's just ready to strike at any moment. And yeah, it does. It, yeah. He Cox does look a bit trimmer, but you know, and, but whatever they're doing there with the makeup, the lighting, you know, he just looks a lot sharper and a lot more like a threat in every single scene. And it's just, it's very, uh, unsettling. Right. Whereas like you said, Ken looks like he has jowls now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He looks Over like Drew the dog. <laughs> I mean, I guess when you go through something like that. (laughs) Yeah, and I will say that I think that generally speaking, the visual direction of the show is one of its weaker points. But in this first episode, that shot of Ken, like, pawing at the belt on his robe and then cutting to his feet and seeing the water just puddling around him, I was like, okay, that's an absolutely devastating image. And it's like, it felt like the visuals more attuned to character in this episode. Yeah. yeah, I would I would agree. The director is Mark Mylod, who I think of as kind of the stealth kind of second showrunner for the show after Jesse Armstrong, because he directed four episodes of the first season. He directed the first episode after Adam McKay's pilot. He has been mm-hmm. you know, a huge part in establishing the look of the show and in incorporating how McKay's style of sort of structuring improvisation into the shooting um, would continue. And I think in this one, you know, there's, there's still a sense, we still know that improvisation is part of the process, um, but overall it feels just like much more tightly directed and there are, there are fewer scenes that feel like they are just kind of roving as they were in the first season looking for interesting observations. There's They're very much shooting a script and shooting the material and things seem much more planned out, I think, than they did in the first season. And thank fucking God there are fewer of those tiny little zooms. The most annoying visual affectation. <laughs> yeah, I think like Zoom. 95% of viewers do not enjoy those. <laughs> oh my god! In the pilot, I was like, "What is this?" Yeah. We need to we need to find somebody to come on the podcast and take devil's advocate and defend the snap zooms, just because we've had too much bashing of it. So this is an open invitation to the one guy listening to this who just really loves snap zooms to come on, Adam McKay. If that's you, we'd love yeah. to have you. That they, well, you know, he's plenty uh, willing to yell at people on Twitter for not liking Vice. So honestly, he might come on to defend it. <laughs> Adam, we love you. Just just tone down the zooms. Yeah. <laughs> we talk I talk about Kendall's body language all the time and the way that he sort of you know is always always looks stressed, always looks like he's just like clenching. And you know, the few times we've seen relief in his body language throughout the first season was when he was using sort of had that air of invincibility and then again, you know, by the time 
the finale rolled around the last season. It was sort of like the apex of him sort of melting into his father's arms. And I think that now Ken is probably, he seems medicated to me. Um, we did, we do see him take those like a couple of pills while he's sitting in the interview chair before that happens. But, um, he seems like very catatonic. So I think it's possible that he's up on whatever meds he takes. His nose starts bleeding, right? So is the implication that he's still doing coke on rehab or is that I don't a symptom think something so. else? I mean, I, I think that again, like, and the show does this so well, we can maybe think and 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 posit that but i think for me like that whole scene it was was so great when they're all just sort of swarming around him and carolina's like i'm pulling this and he's like no i can do it carolina i can do it i saw that more as just like like utter stress yeah it's yeah it's interesting i mean like it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that he found coke in iceland but um it seems to me like ken is probably like I mean, he's in a state of of shock and, like, post-traumatic stress. And I don't think for those two days, I think he probably was just keeping to himself. I mean, I feel like that scene in the spa was probably, like, one of the first times he's, like, been out. Um, I imagine after his travels and, and just everything sinking in that he's exhausted. But, yeah, I mean, it is po- it is very possible. But I just saw that as, as him being um, extremely just, like, anxious and out of sorts. I had fun imagining uh, that Ken runs into, like, Jack Dorsey at his wellness retreat. Well, all the celebrities go to that retreat, apparently. It's, like, you know, the place to go. I don't know, you know, one of those combination rehab, spa, psych hospital, where Justin Bieber, you know, people like that hang out. Yeah, I'm sure it's great for rehab. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's doing a lot of healing, yeah. I mean, if I all the celebs are there, it must be really good. I do love that the very first thing he did upon getting back into the office was ask for Coke. Yeah, to Carolyn. Oh, God, so I know. I felt so bad for her, like, just thinking, like, this is not in my fucking job description. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she pawns it off on, of course, Greg, who gets him park Coke. Yeah, we really missed an opportunity for a scene there of Greg procuring the uh, the park coke. That that could have been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think what you mentioned in the beginning and just about um, how much business there is in this episode just kind of touches on the pacing of this and like how like you know we I, we mentioned like how the scenes don't feel as loose or as searching as they did in the first season. It feels very much like they are hitting all their marks and they're going rapid fire through the script. So. It's entirely possible that a scene like that might have been in the script, but there just wasn't room for it because this episode really has a lot of stuff to do. Yeah, that makes sense. I do um I do really love the the cable news scene because it's it's such a good parody of those kind of segments in in a really sly way because obviously we see that Ken is a total disaster and is barely present mentally. Um, and Carolina wants to pull it, but uh, because those segments are so totally meaningless, Ken is still able to just kind of parrot the basic sound bites and, you know, appear competent, uh, even though we know that he's basically dead inside. It also gave us the beautiful description of uh, an unshaven candle. <laughs> 
Oh, that's such a good line. I think that's the best, like, uh, that's the best, like, insult line in this episode. It looks like an unshaven candle. And there's another one that's like, he looks like a, like a waxy corpse or something. Yeah, yeah. Lots of, lots of cadaver yes. and corpse. Uh, yeah, sweaty corpse was great. <laughs> a good bit of detail work there. Another, like, uh, just get background gag that they just kind of trust you to get is that Roman is watching that on his iPad while he's at the hospital in Japan for the people who lost their thumbs or whatever in the satellite right. explosion. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, we don't see him do at all. He probably, like, got there and dropped off some balloons, like, watched his <laughs> iPad for a few minutes and bailed. Oh, my God. Imagine a, a bedside hospital visit by Roman Roy. <laughs> Another detail like... I, uh... <laughs> Another detail I particularly loved was uh, that they had bad Wi-Fi in the yacht because they chose to go to a place with no Wi-Fi so that they wouldn't... <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. They have to run into Jack Dorsey at some point. I'm telling you, they got they're going to the retreat without Wi-Fi. They're at the wellness center. They got to run into Jack at some point. Make it happen. Some new characters and 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 faces, and I think I think they're gonna, you know, not obviously because that's antithetical to you know Armstrong's whole idea of the project. But it seems like they're gonna insert maybe some more ripped from the headlines or you know inspired vaguely by. Um, with some of these characters that are coming in and some of the deals. Um, you know, I know that the bear hug thing is something that... Who was I reading that that did it? You know, some big media company. But, yeah, it does seem like, you know, they might draw on, on, on some of that for, for more inspiration. So you never know who we will run into. I mean, and then, like, even Shiv talking about when Shiv and Rome are at the summer palace and they're taking their walk and they're sort of just doing the rundown and the way that Shiv laughed about Connor being in the white house was like how we laugh about Connor being in the white house. And I loved that so much because yeah, except, just, except yeah. they're laughing about it in this way of like, actually that could probably happen. <laughs> they're right. like, Oh I mean, no, I guess this is laughing about it because they're uh, terrified of people like, Connor, like we are. But just yeah. like, haha, isn't it crazy that he can just manifest reality with his money? Right, like yeah. The... <laughs> like, it's a given. Yeah, President Raisin. <laughs> <laughs> there was that great moment in the conversation between uh, Roman and Shiv when she tells him that uh, she thinks he's smart, she thinks he's talented, whatever. And he has this like long pause where he sizes her up, <laughs> tells her that she's a fucking bitch. And um, and I felt like that sort of like ambiguity of like what people are really thinking and what their actual plans are and what their ambitions are was sort of reflected again in the end when like, I, I mean, I have no clue whether Logan really thinks that Shiv is the one who should be running the business or if it's purely to like manipulate the other siblings. So yeah, I thought that that sort of like ambiguity throughout the episode was really interesting. Well, let's let's talk a bit about the sort of uh, quote unquote succession storyline in this episode, because the bit of business that occurs is uh, Logan sits down with his friend. Uh, I think it's Jamie Laird. He's referred to alternately as Jamie and Laird in this episode, uh, played by Danny Houston, appears to be a, a trusted uh, confidant of Logan's who advises him to sell the company because the days of media behemoths like Logan's are kind of coming to an end and tech is disrupting the sector. So he should really consider selling. (laughs) 
it's a great it's a great monologue and it's 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 another one of these I, what i've come to think of as just like classic underused danny houston roles where houston has is just a wonderful presence who has all this sort of natural uh you might say inherited charisma and screen presence um coming from such a great family of actors as he does but here he's just kind of playing yeah a guy named laird <laughs> it's yeah, laird is a, a weird a... choice Weird he's choice. Such, such an incredible presence, though. I, I hope that he's not just like relegated yeah. to something minor. Well, he makes sense as somebody who would just be in Logan's orbit. He lends that. He's just like he right. looks like money. He looks like wealth. He look he he has that kind of gravitas that you would just expect uh, everybody in Logan's immediate orbit to be, and it kind of makes sense along with like David Rash, um, who also they do very little with on this show, but he just makes sense as the kind of person who's around. But so they, he summons the whole family up to what they call the Summer Palace, which is actually uh, Henry Ford II's uh, summer estate in the Hamptons is the house they used for this, for this set, and uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty incredible. And there's that great, that great montage that we talked about of everybody getting everything ready, like taking things out of storage, you know, pulling uh, plastic off all the furniture and all this stuff. And what it really reminded me of, you know, we were talking about how this show is such an expensive production and you can see the money on the screen, but it really just reminded me of like, you know, filmmaking, right? Like this is what filmmaking is. You find a location like this and there's this like small army of people that have to make it look like people live there. Basically, um, that's uh, that's what that whole sequence just kind of reminded me of. Is like the stuff that they're filming is the stuff that they would be doing every time mm. that they go to establish a location for one of these places. Yeah, and I love how they're like super apologetic when Ken slinks in, and he's just like, "I'm early. It's okay. I'm not here." Um, just making himself totally invisible, and even with the smell when he says to to Logan, when Logan's like fuming about it, he's like, "Eventually, you just get used to it." Like, Ken is just, he's such a, I think Shiv uses the term, he's like a beaten dog in this episode. I mean, he's so submissive. Yeah, Logan says he's taken his medicine, but the phrase that occurred to me more was brought to heal. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think he literally has taken some medicine, but what, yeah, exactly. What it meant more than anything to me was just that, you know, we don't need to worry about Ken anymore. But it was hard to see him have the conversations with Shiv and Rome and again with Stewie and just not like realizing that he's never going to be able to tell anybody this. Oh yeah. Like yeah, just the that, impl- uh... the implications long term for his like mental well-being, just having that guilt lingering is it's a lot. So it was hard to see like Shiv and Rome kind of, you know, beating up on him even though <laughs> again, it's hard. He did kill somebody technically. Yeah. But um, yeah, just the sadness of him saying, you know, I can't get into it. The whole, I mean, the whole episode, he's he's submissive. I mean, even in the office with Logan, when he's like holding the door open for everybody as they leave, just such a shift from like you know the sort of smugness he used to walk into those offices with, and I, you know he's not wearing, he's just wearing lay people clothes, and he's not even allowed to drive the motorcycle himself. Well, the thing that really got me was, you know, the way that he's using this episode is not in any sort of terms of a character arc, he's pretty static throughout the episode. Um, But he's used as this sort of bit of atmosphere and this sort of symbol of, you know, what could be or this sigil of doom. And the the part that really got to me was when, uh, you know, Shiv is summoned into the study to have her chat with Logan. 
And as Logan's going back in, he like squeezes Ken's shoulder in this very rare bit of physical affection. Yeah. And Shiv and Roman don't know what to make of it. And what it is, is this obvious sign of like, this is what it means to get close to your dad. Like, this is what has to happen to you. If you really want him to love you and to show it in the way that you want it to, like that, that's what has to happen to you is you have to completely lose yourself. And uh, it's, it's, it's very disturbing. It's so dark. And like, I caught my breath in the moment where he said, thank you for going on TV. Because it like these people are so completely emotionally starved that something that seems so minor and like is what any other like you know decent person would say that that felt like such a huge gesture was just devastating. Yeah, and that's what I love about. I mean, the the scene between Shiv and Logan is really the centerpiece of this episode, and you know, in the after the episode, sort of. Um, uh, behind the scenes bit with Armstrong. Armstrong talks about how it was very moving for him to see the way Snook acted it, you know, this realization that she didn't almost have before about how badly she wants this thing that she didn't realize she wanted to be running the company. But I don't think what she wants is really to run the company. That's not, not what she realizes. What she realizes that she wants very badly is for Logan to say she's the one, right? right. I don't think that she really cares about, you know, the company or being able to run it. Does she care about business acumen? I'm sure she gets some thrill out of, you know, being the idea of being behind the wheel of power at that level and being able to pull those levers herself. But what she really wants is for dad to put her in the chair. She wants dad to be the one to say, oh, yeah. like, yes, you deserve this and I want you to be there. Um, that's what really moves her and brings her to tears. And that's why right. she, she has that great line where she goes, why did you never ask me? Um, right. That's, the, mm-hmm. that's the thing that's the most crushing is that, you know, I, I just wanted mm-hmm. to be asked. And it's all the more crushing because you know he doesn't mean it. Right. I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's, so it's hard, <laughs> so hard to tell at this point. You know, I, I, I again, like I'm not a, <laughs> a business person, so I don't really know. I'm just thinking in terms of Logan's sort of, emotional manipulation in the way that he so badly needs his kids to be under his purview you know nobody's ever missing but it's hard for me to think business wise like you know of of those logistics of like what his calculus might be just because I don't really get what's going on with like the bear hug and well, I think I think he says kind of everything he says in this episode, I think, indicates, you know, why he would want to bring Shiv in, you right. know, in the, when he talks about how the family needs to stick close together. It's true, right? He doesn't want anybody else stepping out and trying to betray him, right? As Shiv seems very capable of doing, you know, and has been in the past. He wants to make sure that she's in the fold um, so that, you know, and like, yes, she's smart and all this stuff, but also, you know, he knows that his family are the only people that he can really trust when everything around him is, you know, falling down or is under attack. He knows that he can trust his family as much as he can trust anybody, right? Of course. So then, but then why would he be fucking her over? Like, what's, you know, you know what I mean? Because everyone was like, oh, like, you know, he's gonna, you know, he's got some nefarious plan by asking her this. So Well, I, well, the, the ulterior motive is not that he wants to do something bad to his daughter. The ulterior motive is just that Logan does not intend to give up power ever. You know, right. he, you know, he'll, he'll way out. Yeah. Yeah. He'll say that, you know, yes, so-and-so will take over. Um, but as long as he's alive, he's going to be in that chair. Right. Um, and that's and that's what's gonna that's what's gonna end up disappointing Shiv is that you know the best you can hope for is to be in the seat that Kendall was in, which is just waiting and waiting and waiting and being a fixture at his side. 
which I think, by the way, is probably my prediction at this point is that Ken just ends up back where he started uh, in that same spot um, because he's the person who will, you know, his, has been brought to heel and that Logan can trust the most because he has the most leverage over him. And he'll end up back in that spot where he was as the heir apparent, but, you know, never to actually take the seat. Yeah. And Brendan, I know you had some thoughts about like the direction and the blocking and that scene with um, Shiv and Logan, but I also want to point out um, the funny line that Shiv had. Uh, succession has a tendency to repeat like certain uh, certain terms that you don't really use in, in daily life, but she, when she's accusing Logan of having made a deal with Ken, she says, what a squalid little backroom deal. It's just a nice throwback to Tom <laughs> reacting to Greg staying in a youth hostel and saying how squalid. Um, again, just small little <laughs> things that the, the writer's room does in succession. It's just a, it's just a rich person word. Exactly. Yeah. Squalid. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. The, the direction of this scene and the blocking, I think in particular is as good as it's been on this show because they really give you a really good angle of that whole room where for like most of the scene, Logan just kind of perches himself in that corner on the couch and is very calm and doesn't move. And Shiv is like leaning forward. She's restless. She gets up. She paces. She circles. She sits back down. But she never gets any closer to Logan. Like she she stalks around, you know, like very nervously. He asks her to come in. And she sits back down. But she keeps her distance. She never gets closer to him. Um, and uh, it's only at, like, at the end of that scene where he crosses to the desk. He says, I'm going to tweet and move the markets. And forces her to come to him that the deal is sealed, right? But she has this natural wariness that the scene expresses, um, which is just really good. And like, I think, um, you know, earlier when they were structuring scenes a bit differently and letting the actors find it a bit more, you didn't see that kind of degree of uh, staging everything with the physical space and the movement. Um, but this, that was just a, just a, another element that really made this scene just land incredibly hard. One of the best directed and acted scenes that they've done, I think. Yeah, it was beautiful. And even that little bite of poetry that Logan gave us, remember this slant of light, it felt a little bit different from from the first season. Something that I find so interesting about that scene in particular and the amount of control that Brian Cox has in it, like that she is constantly moving. He's got this like nervous energy pulsing through and he's so deliberate in all of his movements. To see that someone who is as intelligent as Shiv and who has talked in you know the previous season about being in extensive therapy it still has so little perspective of her own relationships and like so little understanding of herself um and that yeah that's something that i find so interesting consistently in the show that you lots of dumb people but also some very smart people who just even though they go through the motions of like analyzing and therapy and all this stuff like just really know so little about themselves and about how the dynamics of their family work. And even when they can see those dynamics at play, they're just so helpless in the face of them and like can't help but fall back into these patterns of like wanting to please dad. Right. I mean, they're so bound to, they're so like when you have a family business, it becomes so personal. Like when Logan made the comment, like this company means a lot to me and Shiv's like, well then keep it for sentimental reasons, a toy shop. That definitely happens. You know, I, I uh, am part of a family that has, sort of a legacy business that's probably been around since the same time that, you know, the Roy's started, but, you know, certainly not the biggest media conglomerate in the world, but enough of a, a livelihood to 
you know, support my family through several generations. And similarly to what's been talked about on this episode where tech is taking over, you know, you're only, there's only going to be one or two legacy media operations left in a few years. You know, you have to see the writing on the wall. Yeah, my family's com- industry was also disrupted by tech. And, you know, there was a huge, you know, not succession level um, power struggle. But a lot of it was just sort of centered around the the, the sentiments and the, the nostalgia. That line, yeah, that line really struck me when he's like, this company means a lot to me. And, I, and again, it's hard because like, I don't know. He delivered those lines with such confidence that I believed everything that he said. But again, it's Logan Roy. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's just this concept of having like all your selfhood wrapped up in this institution, right? Like wrapped up in this business, wrapped yeah, up I mean, in this Yeah, it's company. your whole identity, yeah. Yeah, that's as true for Logan, you know, as it is for any of these kids who have no identity outside of their family name. He has no identity outside of his company, which is the real sort of existential uh, driving force behind the idea that he'll never retire and he'll never step down is just that he would cease to exist if he ever did. So he right, can't. Yeah. Um, that's the sort of unstated thing that everybody kind of understands, but won't say, um, because they want to keep thinking of him as human, but he, you know, he, he doesn't think of himself that way, of course, as we see of uh, people at this level. There's, but the, uh, the other great device in this episode that we haven't really touched on is, uh, or too much is the, uh, yeah, the stink, the, the dead raccoons, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just we we talked about like yeah they they find the dead raccoons in the chimney, but you know for like ten minutes or so it's just this thing where they all like walk into the house and are like oh it smells like death in here, and it's this very just overt almost it reminded me of like of like art films of like Louis Bunuel's uh, uh like the exterminating angel where like all the aristocracy are trapped in this house where they they just find themselves incapable of leaving for like some unknown reason just like the roys are just stuck in this house where everything it just has this stench that no one can explain it's just a metaphor for (laughs) for whatever's going on and the show doesn't usually deal in quite such overt kind of metaphor or symbolism as this but uh obviously this is kind of a funny one um and uh, shallow child's grave as roman so (laughs) (laughs) artfully put it (laughs) which was really dark especially considering like very disturbing concepts just the shallow grave the child (laughs) grave put together is the child's grave like inherently a little bit more shallow i don't know yeah i mean there was no reason for him to say shallow child grave like that's kind of kind of overkill you gotta have somebody work jokes but that's his brand that's yeah that's that's totally him and then overkill and then telling him he learned who he was we learned who he was in the first episode when she said that his uh cologne smelled like date rape he said you wished he was a sister right yeah roman is a sick a sick puppy as connor says yeah. frequently he, he, he greets shiv in this episode by saying what's up sex pot yeah yeah no yes. i love it i love that like they're keeping that thread going like the psychosexual issues roman and 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 it was funny because even though i, I saw this episode as much more like about the succession and the business which is good and it needed to happen after episode 10 um you know some of the the psychodrama that we've talked about like has roman been abused have any of the kids been abused and then there's this great line when they're at the table with the pizza when 
Um, <laughs> Shiv says to Rome, you know, dad beat you with a slipper when you ordered the lobster and Gustav. And, um, you know, Roman gets up and he's kind of like uncomfortable. He like immediately gets up again, Roman, just like the way he occupies space. Um, so, so much discomfort with his body. And then he's like, well, it's, it's not polite to order the most expensive thing on the menu when you're not paying Siobhan. But, um, it was like a funny moment, but again, just a reminder that, um, you know, these kids kind of (laughs) did not have the easiest childhood being raised by someone like Logan Roy and, and for them to just kind of flat out in the first episode, say, bring up another reference to, you know, one of the kids being, you know, abused by Logan kind of grounded it in, in what I've come to love about the show. Yeah, the scenes with, like, uh, the siblings talking in this episode, you know, particularly the scene with the scenes where they're outside, like Shiv and Roman at first, and then when they meet Ken, had this very, like, Noah Bombach energy to me, where it's just, like, privileged asshole New York kids wearing expensive clothes, just being very scabrous and insulting with each other. But the common thread in those scenes is that you know, sincerity is the thing that they're most suspicious of or the thing that they can't abide, you know, when uh, Shiv seems to be earnestly trying to compliment Roman, but also aware that on some level that hearing that from her is going to fuck with him really badly. And then also when Ken just like straightforwardly apologizes to Shiv and she gets really like offended by it, like how dare you apologize to me is just very strange. But it ties back, especially with the closing scene of the episode, which I don't know if we want to get to yet um, about how no one ever quite says what they mean and saying what you mean is just a sign of weakness do we want to get to the the final scene of this episode and talk uh, talk some stewie yeah let's talk some stewie <laughs> they deploy stewie in the best possible way in this episode i mean like so the whole episode the whole episode's very, very good. It's a, it's a great episode. You know, it's going to be well before I can figure out where it like sort of ranks in the show. But the way that they structure the beginning and the ending, where Ken is up in the mountains, he is all he is well appears to be for a moment at least at peace, and then he is brought down to earth. He's brought down in this descent through the mountains, and then that descent continues in this final scene where he goes into this restaurant to meet with Stewie and Sandy and descends into the the lower level where Stewie and Sandy are waiting for him. And it's so evocative of this sort of visual cue that they used before with Stewie in Prague, where they seem to be going down into the bowels underground under the subway tunnels. And Stewie is there waiting on the other side of this wet expanse in the tunnels, like Charon on the other side of the river Styx, you know, like the ferryman of the underworld. And that's what he, that's what he appears to be here too. Like the way they use Stewie as this sort of functionary ghoul in this underworld that Ken has to enter is just, it's, it's, it's very weird and creepy. Um, but also just evocative of how uh, how much Stewie has embraced this uh, this loss of selfhood and of personhood that Ken is going through, and you know Stewie really has no identity except as uh, or as Sandy says a parasite on a parasite. And he's just a he's just a barnacle. He's just a, a a secondary sort of demon, a familiar, and uh, that's it sets up this whole scene like just really well because it, this whole interaction between him and Ken is just so freighted. Stewie, I thought it was interesting that he uh, is not offended or feels betrayed by the fact that Roman 
didn't end up falling through on the deal with them, but just by the fact that he won't tell the truth. Because we've seen in the previous season him, like, happily betray, or sorry, Kendall, um, like, happily betray Kendall's trust and plans because it was better for him in business. So, yeah, the fact that that's not what bothers him, it's just the transparent. Yeah, and even him pulling out the, like, the line that there's a friend card here you can play. Um, when we know that Stewie is completely self-interested. Stewie is, in fact, not directly the reason, but indirectly the reason that Ken is in this position. So I feel like, you know, it's just, it's another layer of of just, of, of daggers for Ken that, you know, he can't say what happened. He just has to repeat the refrain that dad's plan was better and it's obvious bullshit. And the way Stewie calls him out in this scene is excellent. Um, he has some great sort of uh, sparkling dialogue, but he also just calls him out straight up, you know, when he keeps saying, the, you know, the bullshit about, oh, the plan, the plan. And he's like, what the fuck does that even mean? Um, which is something I appreciate a lot in this show when it happens, because <laughs> a lot of these characters cloak their language um, in sort of these you know, vague terms. Again, we don't really know what to think, what to trust. And as much of a villain as Stewie has sort of become, I mean, really seeing him like this with in the, that restaurant basement, it did feel like a hellscape. There was that moment there when um, you could tell he just, he really wants to know, like he says, how did he get at you? And, you know, I just, it just had me thinking like how, is Ken going to live with this? And we didn't talk about the scene where um, Colin pulls Ken into the basement in the Hamptons house and tells him that um, yeah. what happened and the details of the investigation. They give a name to the kid who died. Um, they say that upon impact, he was still alive. He, he, he unbuckled his seatbelt, which was like, and Ken's just like, oh, like. <laughs> oh, that's so painful. Horrible. You can, just you can see that hit him horrible. so hard. It's just like he kind of just like his eyes widen a little bit, but he's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, just yeah. like, oh, yeah, the kid survived the impact and he, he so could. So ostensibly, Ken could have, like, yeah. So the question after episode 10 was like, oh, would, would it have even mattered? But that detail from Colin was just like, oh, fuck. Like, if you had tried maybe once or twice more, like, you, you might have been able to, you probably would have been able to get him out. And that was rough. It was rough that Ken had to hear that from Colin, who's like, just... Another absolute ghoul of this year. Yeah. Um, rather than Logan. And, and I thought that was interesting that, you know, we were talking about how Logan um, called the contractor and made a whole big thing and bragged about his lawyer working for the justice department but you know a conversation like that he outsources to somebody like colin (laughs) yeah well we've we've talked about the way the show deals with the very expansive metaphor of the death pit which also touches on the way that people and that occupy this kind of rarefied air of the super wealthy are very good at not knowing things that they would rather not know and that's what someone like Colin is there for. He's there right. to know the things and to deal with the things that Logan would, you know, he wants to have influence over and he wants to know that they're being taken care of, but he doesn't want to know any of the specifics or even see the outline of it. 
right? Um, and, you know, like, even giving Ken those details um, is kind of, you know, further putting him in this bind by giving him that knowledge. Right? Like, he just didn't have to say that. <laughs> but he did. Yeah. Um, and he just said it, it was so matter-of-factly because that's sort of the nature of his job. But, I mean, that line was just just gutting. You know, I didn't know if we were going to get something like that, you know, sort of follow-up. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's a, it's another descent, right? You know, Ken has to go into, you know, the laundry room into the basement of this house yeah. um, into this underworld. And his ultimate indignity is the idea that he has to skulk back through, you know, what, you know, what you might refer to as the servant quarters, right? As, you know, the, as he has to skulk through, you know, the help. Yep. And skulking through with Stewie and Sandy, obviously, you know, Logan's not going to come in and deal with it. He's going to outsource this job to Ken. And Ken has you know, literally no choice at this point. And, you know, like you mentioned about Stewie being reduced to sort of a functionary role, Ken, you know, is able to communicate to just to um, Sandy that, you know, if you keep, if we don't figure out some way to settle some asset swap that, you know, my dad, he will never, ever give up. He'll go to jail before he stops. Then he'll send men to kill your pets and fuck your wives he says again just is very like his affect is just completely gone um he's just saying this stuff like as a matter of fact you know because this is what dad does you could totally imagine him delivering that speech in the first season just like really biting into it like delivering it with complete gusto like killing your pet and fucking your wives and then in in this version of Kendall, though, that his, like, soul has been completely destroyed, he delivers it like he's, like, reading off the extensions on a phone recording. It, oh, it's bleak. <laughs> it's, also the, it's also the exact same thing that Roman suggests, right, when Roman has right. his meeting with Logan. <laughs> And, and, you know, Logan says, what do you suggest we do about, you know, the bear hug? And Roman says, oh, you know, Scooby do it. <laughs> he goes, what do you mean by that? He goes, you know, just like dress up as ghosts, blah, you know, hire, you know, the honey trap hookers, <laughs> private investigators, all the awful people in our orbit, you know, scare them off. Yeah. Um, and Ben's like, hmm, yeah. It hit up all the senators that owe us shit for yeah. proof of yeah. shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't really take it seriously, even though that's what they end up doing. But then in S- Sandy's reaction, you kind of see why Logan doesn't take it that seriously. It's because Sandy is fucking game for that. There's, right. uh, that amazing stink, mm-hmm. that amazing line where Larry Pine is just completely unruffled and says, good, let's move ahead with that process. Right, and then the episode just ends, and you're like... Whoa. So chilling. <laughs> it's, it, also, it's like the only thing he says in that scene. I think he says, like, hi, and that's the, that's the only line that he has where he's, he's addressed as Sir Sandy by Stewie, which is another just, like, Shakespearean flourish... But yeah. again, you know, I, I talked about how, you know, Logan is ro- is roving around like Lucifer in the flesh. And that's really what Sandy looks like mm-hmm. here is just, he's always, you know, like in Prague, he was always in this like underlit in this like red glow. And he really just looks like the Lord of Darkness is the way he's always considered, even though Logan is awful. This guy who's antithesis, the show is very clear to point out is just as bad, if not worse. We know he's a pervert too, like a top tier pervert so (laughs) based on what they told us in Prague so yeah I was wondering about that I was wondering if that's actually true or if it was just an excuse to get Ken and Sandy in the same place and he doesn't actually go to those parties 
So I was kind of wondering about that, although, of course, it's much more suggestive if, yeah, you imagine that he is just a world-class lech, you know, Epstein-style psycho. Yeah. Certainly not a reach. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and Pine, of course, is just really good at, you know, just giving off that kind of silky, awful, tobacco-coated <laughs> uh, uh, menace. Um, but yeah, that's that's that whole final scene. I am just I am in love with that. It's an amazing bit of staging, filmmaking, scripting, and the way that Strong delivers that just zombified monologue, talking about the most horrible shit, and Sandy just going, "Okay, yeah, sure, let's do it." Yeah. Um, <laughs> very very chilling. So I guess that's the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I meant when there's... Oh, the opening credits. Yes. Shelly, please talk about the yeah, credits. Oh, oh, I mean, you know, I spend all day, every day singing the theme song, so... <laughs> but yeah, I like that they, um, <laughs> like we got some, some new home footage. <laughs> yeah, I like that we got the kids a little bit older. Although it was mm-hmm. weird because... At first, I thought when they always show the two boys next to each other that it was Roman mm. and Ken, just based on the age difference. Because if you like look at sort of their ages when they're little, and when then they're sort of show like the teenagers, um, it, they don't seem to show that age gap that we presume between Connor and Ken. Again, just like nitpicking, but yeah, I, it's. I mean, I love that they kept most of the of the of the title credits i i don't always love it when a show completely changes it but those new sort of little um snippets and and i like especially the one like that it's it's blurrier again i'm i'm not <laughs> i'm not like uh and well versed in in any sort of like film jargon but um it feels very like like it was recorded on like a camcorder you know in 1993 or something I loved the like the swan in the in the pool shot along with older Shiv, teenage Shiv. I just thought that uh it was it was good that they didn't remove everything. But Yeah, the credits are the credits are really wonderful. I real I'm realizing that we haven't really talked about them on the show before and the purpose they serve. I mean like we've talked about, you know, obviously Nicholas Bertel's incredible theme music, which does so much in all its different variations that he's recorded to establish the mood of right. the show and the themes of the show. But the the credits and the way it intercuts between this home footage, which seems to be this mix of like, yeah, very grainy home video and some like kind of staged family portraiture. And then the contemporary, just like very cold, sleek digital footage of their kind of trappings of wealth. Um, you know, it's, I, I just always go back to, I'm not sure if it's in the credits from in this new iteration, but the shot from the, the first season credits where, uh, it's just, I think the boy who's meant to be Kendall or just a young boy watching their father just kind of walk away in the distance. And you only, you almost always see him from the back in the back of his head. It's just this, this image that's just very potent to me. It just looms over the show. Um, this idea of just the unknowable father figure that they're just chasing and that is always looming in their mind is the way they saw him uh, when they were young and never being able to see him, you know, to be able to see his face, always seeing him from behind and just seeing him as a shape, as a figure. Yeah, I also noticed that after listening to our, re-listening to our Austerlitz conversation about swimming, that 
there is that clip of who's, I guess, ostensibly supposed to be Logan in the title credits coming out of a pool, which I thought was interesting since um, the kids say that Logan doesn't swim. And, yeah, I wonder, you know, if that was just an oversight or if that was something deliberate. When we have Jesse Armstrong on the show, we have to ask him if the credits are canon. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Any of the entertainment journalists uh, listening to this who actually get to interview Jesse Armstrong can ask him that as well. (laughs) We'll take that. But yeah, very exciting. Very, very sharp first episode. Definitely feel um, like, yeah, like Brendan was saying, a lot tighter in terms of the direction, the dialogue. Um, you know, just clearly not going to sophomore slump this show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean the sophomore, yeah, the sophomore slump is something that's associated with TV. I feel like because, you know, often, especially in cable drama shows will, you know, they'll do the conceit in the first season, right. And there won't be as good a plan for how they're going to follow that up. And that just really doesn't seem to have been the case here. Um, I think part of it helps that, you know, Succession has such a kind of collaborative sort of production style where the actors are helping them find the characters and, you know, some of the writing is changing and they're um, sharpening the approach um, to the direction on the fly. So a lot of the first season was kind of in this process of finding the show as much as it was executing, you know, what was a very carefully planned and considered sort of dramatic structure. So I think that really positioned them well to, yeah, deliver an absolutely um, next level second season. So, uh, uh, yeah, I am ready for this to be the new Game of Thrones. I am gritting my teeth and stealing myself for all the awful takes I have to read and all the terrible uh, <laughs> post-show breakdowns I have to read kind from pop culture sites. That we'll how, quick, how quickly it all happened! My God, <laughs> it's the new it's the new show for Twitter blue check marks to obsess over. And we uh, promise that we are not going to do power rankings. <laughs> you know what I was thinking about is I was thinking about how I've talked before about how I learned to like talk about TV on the like AV club TV club comment sections and there was a guy in the Mad Men threads who would always post like power rankings oh, but God. his were like really good and they were always oh, yeah. like just a structure and like a means to get into talking about the characters and it was never just like who won the week which is literally what people are doing on succession right. it's like if won the week it's like yeah no shit dude can you provide some analysis <laughs> like ken was ken was doing real bad in this episode <laughs> Wow, so I guess I'm not going to do my power rankings anymore, guys. Shelly, we trust that yours will be trenchant and well thought out. (laughs) Thank you so much. I've dedicated a lot of time to working on these power rankings. (laughs) Got lots of charts. One more thing about this episode. Marsha wasn't in it that much, but when she was in it, she was so good. And when she gave Ken that kiss and said, like, she called him. She's like, you're a good boy. And out of great challenges come strong men. And he, he just kind of, it was so sad because it was the kind of thing that Ken probably would need to hear from a mother, maybe like 25 years ago. <laughs> um, oh but now yeah. it's his mom's, I mean, his, his father's wife, who he doesn't have a particularly close relationship with. And the way she kind of kissed him and got like, you know, up in his space, it was just, Ugh, like you know and then and then she just kind of like walks off and is like marianne bring up the candles 
Um, <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big Marsha fan, but she actually did get in one of my favorite lines in this episode when she's walking around the house with Logan, and Logan's like, "What do you think? Should I sell or whatever?" And Marsha's like, "What? I have to dance for Daddy right. too." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes. So, she's like stealth the most ruthless person in the entire show. Yeah, low key. Like she's yeah, I'll be it'll be interesting to see what she what she has in store. Especially cuz you know she's not particularly fond of Shiv and if Shiv is the new successor, I don't know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. If they uh are they still doing that Rebecca remake cuz if so they should cast Tiana Bess as uh, Mrs. Danvers is my pitch. Oh, hell yeah. Hot Mrs. Danvers. I'm here for it. <laughs> Let's do it. Isn't it like Kristen Scott Thomas, I think? <gasps> yes, that's right. Ugh. So we still get Hot Mrs. Danvers. I'm happy. <laughs> it's inevitable. Yeah, it's dude. The, it's, it's the Instagram <laughs> era. Everybody's going to be just like distractingly yeah. <laughs> hot in every period adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Closing thoughts on this. Um, my uh, biggest takeaway from the episode is uh, Karen Culkin's line reading of uh, Dad put me in charge. No, he didn't. Or maybe he did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love every single line reading of his. I love that he can't sit in any chairs properly. I'm in love. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's wonderful. And then also just a quick shout out to Connor and his Napoleonica. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Willa with the amazing line, kind of like a strip of beef, beef jerky. <laughs> Willa was Willa was getting getting some digs in in this episode. She's uh, she's feeling a bit more comfortable. Yeah, but um, yeah. Con- Connor's a fucking freak. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then Roman had that great line about like the you know Hitler's nutsack and blend it up and make into it take over Europe smoothie. He's just so great. Kieran, you fucking angel. Uh, <laughs> Kieran, come on the show. Kieran, leave your wife and marry me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. We're trying to get her to come on the show. <laughs> no, you guys are beautiful. On congratulations show. on your baby. Yeah, congratulations on your dumb baby. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. (laughs) Well, Shelly, thank you so much for coming on and uh, clapping up our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Look forward to chatting with you throughout the season. Oh, hell yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back every week, come rain or shine, with a uh, Roycast recap. First, best, only succession podcast. Spread the word. And uh, we'll see you next week. Hell yeah. Cheerio. Cheerio.